Hello, my name is Duncan, and you are listening to Unorthodoxy. This episode is part one of a two-part recorded series of talks that I gave a short while ago on the subject of creativity and the logic of novelty. In the first talk, this one that you're about to listen to, I focused on the issue of how and why different people respond to novelty differently, because they do, as you probably have noticed. And in the talk that follows this one, I focus on cognition and how the basic structure of thought is something that is accelerated or escalated in the creative process. But for now, here is part one. I hope you enjoy it. Okay, good morning, everyone. I want to talk about creativity and the logic of novelty. The, the very fact that there could be something like a logic of novelty is probably going to be surprising to some of you. But the gist of it is that I, I want to focus in this talk on how we experience novelty and, and how people respond differently to novelty. And in that, I'm going to hint a little bit at how novelty works. In a way, I'm looking at how creativity functions from the outside looking in, which I think is something that, that all of us relate to, whether we are in the business of creating ideas or not. And then next week, I'm going to follow up with a, a talk on how to come up with ideas. And specifically, I'm going to do something a little unusual. I'm going to be looking at cognitive science and how that informs ideation. That sounds really scary, but I promise it won't be. I'm making promises I can't keep. I will try and keep it as, as non-scary as possible. One of the things that this, um, this subject of novelty has, has um, been, it's been quite an amazing thing to grapple with because it's also given me some insights into my own faith journey. Uh, so I'm going to talk very briefly about that. That's not going to be a, a main focus. Um, there's this uh, book called Innovation and Its Enemies by a Harvard professor whose name is Calestus Juma. And he says that the quickest way to find out who your enemies are is to try something new. And I've, I've found that that's true of finding out who your friends are too. I have, as some of you will know, a tendency to say fairly controversial things especially on the theological front, and it causes a lot of people some upset. But I can also tell who my friends are from that, because the people who are my friends, even if they disagree with me, they, they decide that they will not take their lives out, which is nice. Um, but, but the point is that different people relate to novelty differently, and I think a, a good example is Igor Stravinsky's Rite of Spring. So this is a ballet that was showcased for the first time in 1913, and it sparked a literal riot. When was the last time a ballet recently sparked a riot? Uh, it, it caused such a fuss. There were people rioting, but strangely enough, in, amidst this riot, there were also people who were applauding. So some people just relished this novelty. It was just this amazing thing. Others thought it was less than amazing. So novelty and the experience of novelty definitely differs from person to person. Some are more likely to be comfortable with novelty than others. So there's actually a lot of psychology on novelty seeking and novelty resistance as a psychological phenomenon. I'm not going to go into the details because there are categories there that I don't even understand. But the general outcome is this, that every single one of us enjoys novelty. We need novelty to be able to feel like life is worth living. 
but some of us have a novelty tolerance or toleration level that is a lot higher. If I don't have a new idea a day, I am certainly going to die. <laughs> it's the end of the world. I don't want to put too fine a point on it. It's a very serious thing if I don't get a new idea. But I know some people, when I share my new idea, which I just think is, oh, this is fun, uh, they go to pieces and it's the end of the world for them because it's a new idea. So I think that's a really interesting thing. Different people re relate to novelty differently. And then there are different kinds of novelty. So I love no the novelty of ideas, but I really do want the world to stay fairly stable. Uh, working in a university setting, for example, this just hypothetically, working in a university setting where there's a protest every five minutes and someone's setting a building on fire, that's not a comfortable situation for me. I want new ideas, not necessarily new experiences, and that's, that's a different thing. But you may be different. You may be all about the experience. And that's great. Well done to you. Uh, so the gist is we respond differently to novelty depending on our individual neurocognitive makeup, our character, our temperament. I also do think it, it um, has some, our response to novelty does say something about um, ego formation and spiritual development. If you want to know where you are spiritually, figure out what novelty or what new experiences you're opposed to. If you feel that little bit of resistance, there's a chance you probably need to, to grow in that. Um, so the issue is not novelty per se, but the kind of novelty and whether people will tolerate it. And so there are different responses to novelty. Some people will just laugh. Some people will be more curious. They want to know more. Some people will be incredulous towards certain kinds of novelty. There will be reticence, resistance, and then, of course, there will be outright anger the novelty is just a little bit too much. So to explore a little bit about what, what's going on here, um, the obvious thing to do is to look at jokes and how jokes work. Because that's what you were thinking. You were thinking, that's why I actually came here. It was, <laughs> it was all for the how jokes work. And then how magic tricks work. I think I'll throw those. But because I think both of those things teach us quite profound things about our response to novelty. Um, specifically in the jokes um, section, I want to deal with the dialectical structure of jokes, which is, is, sounds like the most humorless thing we could do, and it is. It's, it's me basically standing up here killing every joke you've ever heard. I don't want you to laugh ever again. That's really my aim. Um, I hope you're not taking me seriously. Okay, so I want to start with a joke. So Dylan Moran is an Irish comedian, and he has this little bit where he talks about how excited he was to become a parent. Because when you're a parent, you are this omniscient being. I think, I think Dylan Moran has misunderstood something about being a parent. But anyway, you're this omniscient being, and your kids are going to ask you questions. And you're going to be able to say, well, I know why the sky is blue. It's because of light refraction, and then whip out a prism that just happens to be in your pocket and show it to people. So Dylan Moran has got this like sense of, this is so exciting. And then his son comes to him one day and says, Dad... What do you call the space between the teeth of a comb? And <laughs> what? Dylan Moran obviously didn't know uh, the answer. It's interspice. That's, that's what it is. But the, okay, so there's a basic setup here. I mean, you can think of any joke. It's the classic one of, of someone who's got a banana in his ear and another guy comes up to him and says, 
you've got a banana in your ear. And he says, sorry, what? You're going to have to speak up. I have a banana in my ear. Um, or the, you know, anything that Groucho Marx says, you know, I, I never forget a face, but in your case, I'll make an exception. Every joke has a setup and a twist. That doesn't necessarily explain how jokes work. Uh, and I, actually, I'm not going to, like, explain jokes. I'm going to look at the structure of jokes, which is something quite different. So there's a setup and there's a twist. There's an expectation and then there's the subversion of the expectation. And that is quite key to understanding how novelty works. Not all expectation subversion dialectics are funny. So there's dialectic. Dialectic just means an interplay of opposites. It just means that, but it means a lot more than that, which I'll get to. So sometimes an expectation subversion is shocking. You, for instance, you're on your way to work and you expect that the trip is going to be very pleasant and you're going to get there in one piece. And then you spill your coffee which, while you're driving and you burn yourself and it's just limbs everywhere. I don't know what you're imagining at this point, but... Uh, <laughs> So that's how, or the expect, like my, this is my typical experience of a meeting, which is my expectation going into the next meeting is it's not going to be as bad as the previous one. And then by the end of the meeting, I have experienced the loss of the meaning of life. Life is meaningless. So that would be an expectation subversion that's not funny. It's funny afterwards to you, but not to me. Okay, that's important. Um, so the key here is that there's a, a kind of fragility in humor. And that the same kind of fragility applies to novelty. There's uh, Hugh Grant, I've heard him talk about the fact that comedy is this very fragile thing. And, and you have to treat it just right so that people don't, like, so that you don't kill the joke or that you time the thing just right. It's really fragile. But this tension between the, the expectation and the subversion in humor theory is known as b benign violation. This is how based most comedy works according to benign violation. In here, this is in um, Thomas. This is Thomas Beach's idea. So if you want to, yeah, not that you care, uh, Robbie will know something of this at least. So um, a violation refers to anything that threatens one's beliefs about how the world should be, and it could, and it could be anything that's threatening. There are a lot of things, threats to psycho, uh, to physical well-being, for instance. Tickling. That's why you laugh with tickling, because it's just you feel like you're going to lose your oxygen, and it's terrible. Psychological well-being. So insults and sarcasm. You might laugh at those, but they're actually threats to psychological well-being. Uh, strange behaviors. Uh, behaviors that break social norms. Flatulence, for instance. <laughs> There's a violation there, but it is benign, we hope. No one is going to die, we hope. Cultural norms, unusual accents, we laugh at Borat, some, some of us, uh, because it's a violation of our expectation of how language works even, or linguistic norms, puns, malapropisms, you knew I was going to talk about malapropisms at some point, logic norms and moral norms. So, comedy revolves around pain. If you wondered why, um, but, then, but then the question is how much pain? And so how much of a violation? So this is the key thing. If the violation is too much, you don't laugh. You cringe. Or you just 
stare blankly at the screen if it's a comedy you're watching. The violation needs to be perceived as benign. But at the same time, on the other side, if it's just benign, you don't laugh because it's just benign. There's no violation. So the tension is really quite important. So how, di how different people respond to novelty actually correlates to how people respond to jokes. The punchline or novelty doesn't have to be drastic to bring about a laugh or to get a response. In some ways, it mustn't be too drastic, obviously. <coughs> too much novelty can, can just be perceived as a violation. And then, very importantly and very weirdly, the punchline reframes what happens before. So this is true of any kind of novelty. That little bit of novelty at the end that you receive reframes everything that comes before it. And that's what a new idea is when, you know, Edison comes along with a light bulb. You can never look at a candle in the same way. It's not funny, but I'm using it as an analogy, which will become important next week. Um, there is both continuity and discontinuity. And the experience of novelty is about this continuum between continuity and discontinuity. Our experience of novelty, if there is too much discontinuity, or we perceive too much discontinuity, continuity, we will tend to feel that the novelty should be rejected. Uh, so too much discontinuity is a problem. There's this really wonderful theorist named Boris Groys, who is a Russian critical theorist. Uh, and he's got a book called On the New, which I, I just loved. I'm not going to summarize the whole book, but a few points are quite important here. The first thing is that the new is anything, again, as in a joke, the new is anything that recasts how we perceive the old. So in a weird sort of way, novelty, the new, creates the old. You only start to see something as old when you encounter the new. So Marcel Duchamp put a, a urinal into an art gallery and changed the way people perceive the art gallery. Any of you know about this? That's why modern art exists. Have you ever wondered why, what, what's wrong with modern art? <laughs> I'm just... I think it's what's right with modern art. It challenges things, but um, it's that's what Duchamp did. It's it's like putting, doing something bizarre, changing the way people perceive how art itself functions. That's quite a profound thing. Then the new is something that revalues or reevaluates what is given. In other words, the new is a value judgment on the old. And I think this is where people get a little bit shaky if they hear a new idea. And it's a little bit irritating or a little bit frustrating. It's the reason it's frustrating or irritating is because they feel that it's making a negative value judgment on the old. It may not be doing that, by the way. Putting a urinal into a, an art gallery doesn't say the whole of the history of art is a waste of time. It just says, maybe we should think about a few things. And I think that's a good thing. And then novelty is essentially exper experienced as unexpected. This feels like a tautology, but anyway. Um, what proves to be innovative is sometimes quite different from what we originally thought would be innovative. You see something new, it's usually new because you didn't expect it. Seems kind of obvious. And then lastly, uh, from Boris Groys's book on the new, novelty is often perceived to have some kind of claim on truth. So, someone comes along with a new idea, uh, let's, let's go back a hundred or so years, um, says, you know what, everything evolved was not created in the way that we thought. 
didn't arise out of six days, it evolved. That back then was totally mind-blowing to a lot of people, right? Totally new, and it seemed to be a truth claim. More perceptive, more perceptive people who knew how to speak would have thought that it's actually not a truth claim, it's just a perspective on something, and maybe there are other perspectives. Uh, but that's, I think, very important. So when, when you encounter something new, you might feel like this is actually making a claim on truth. Maybe it is, but that's certainly not the whole story. So there's obviously a lot more to this. Uh, and to explain some of that, I actually want to look at dialectic itself. Now, that sounds like a terribly boring thing to do, but I will use magic tricks to explain this. I, I, I'm not going to perform any magic. <laughs> Uh, you will be relieved to know, as will I, uh, I'm not prepared. So I've, I've explained Hegel's dialectic before. The caricature of it is that there's a thesis, there's an antithesis, and there's a synthesis. Anyone have heard this before? So the idea, there's a thesis, there's a positive thing, there's an antithesis which sort of resists the thesis, and then in the struggle between the two, there's a synthesis. And everyone is happy and can go home paint cakes for some reason. Um, but that is a caricature. It's very helpful in some ways. Um, probably a better way to understand it is to look at how magic, mag magic tricks actually work. So magic tricks actually have three parts. The better way to do this is to look at, anyone seen Christopher Nolan's uh, movie The Prestige? Okay, if you haven't, you really are missing out on something. It's a really remarkable film. Christopher Nolan is the, the guy to watch for uh, sort of leading filmmaker today. And also, um, The Prestige, I think, is his best film. It's really just, and it, if you want to interpret anything else he's done, you have to watch that one first. Okay, so, uh, this is actually, that movie is based on a book by Christopher Priest called The Prestige. And there, Christopher Priest explains how, uh, how a magic trick works. So, I'll read, read this from that book. Every great trick consists of three parts or acts. The first part is called the pledge. The magician shows you something ordinary, a deck of cards, a bird, or a man, or something else. He shows you this object. Perhaps he asks you to inspect it to see if it is indeed real, unaltered, normal. But, of course, it probably isn't. The second act is called the turn. The magician takes the ordinary something and makes it do something extraordinary. In, in other words, so the bird disappears, or the card, or the man disappears. Now you're looking for the secret. But you won't find it because, of course, you're not really looking. You don't really want to know. You want to be fooled. I would argue not everyone wants to be fooled, but that's part of this uh, story. But you wouldn't, uh, you wouldn't clap yet because making something disappear isn't enough. You have to bring it back. That's why every magic trick has a third act, the hardest part, and that is what we call the prestige. That is dialectic. Dialectic is the pledge. An object is presented, then there is the turn. The object is made to disappear. Let's say it's a canary in a cage because that's what it is going to be uh, as the story continues. And then the prestige is when the canary gets brought back, something that's disappeared is brought back. By the way, if you've ever thought of this, Easter is in some sense dialectical. There is life, there is death, there is resurrection. Uh, 
But it gets more sinister than this because in the prestige, there is, a, there is a part where they're actually showing this act where the canary is made to disappear and then the canary is brought back. And there's a little boy watching this magic trick being performed and he starts crying when the canary disappears. And he says, he killed it. The magician killed the canary. He doesn't say, he doesn't say the magician killed the canary. He just says he killed it and he starts crying. This is a terrible thing. Because that is what happened. To make a canary disappear in that way is to kill it, right? So that's quite an important thing. Um, and this is what I want to point out with respect to our experience of novelty. Some people experience novelty the way some people experience a magic trick. It's amazing. How did they make the canary disappear in the cage and then reappear out of pocket or whatever it is, or out of a nostril? which would have been funnier. So there's this kind of, how did that happen? Amazing. And people, those people want to be fooled. Then there's another group of people who are aware on some level that to do that trick, the canary had to die. And that what comes back is just a different canary completely. And so their experience of the magic trick is that there is only discontinuity not continuity because there is a gap between what happened the turn canary gets killed and the resurrection new canary appears then there are others like me who want to know how the magic trick works and the experience and the experience is of a different kind of always the awe of I mean on some level identifying with the audience and going wow that was amazing but also I'd love to be the guy duping the audience that would be so great, uh, which has problems of its own, but anyway. So there's an identification in this mode of thinking with the magician over and above what's happening in the trick. Some people, in other words, are able to look at both continuity and discontinuity and see that it has a place. And I would argue that there are actually two ways that this can happen. The first way I would call simply the dialectical, which is embracing the dialectic as it is. Seeing that this is great. This is actually how change works. There's always going to be life, death, and resurrection. But this dialectic, by the way, so uh, to refer to the Easter example, in the theologies of Hegel, Zizek, Peter Rollins, and Kester Bruin, on the cross, God actually dies, literally. And the resurrection is not of the body. It is a totally different canary it is the resurrection of the absolute spirit in the body of believers. So that is, that is how dialectic functions theologically. And I think it has value. I think it's a really interesting way of looking at it. It's not exactly what I, I would affirm, but I think let's look at it that way and let's play around with that idea. But that is the dialectical. That's just embracing dialectic as the way things are. Truth is, in fact, a process and it needs to unfold with a bit of violence somewhere in the middle. Then the other way is analogical. So it's using analogy. That's going to be important because analogy is the core of cognition and it is the core of creativity. So I will talk about that next week. And this, this posture, I would say, is what includes dialectic and transcends it. So we're actually looking at, yes, of course, Truth is revealed through this process, but truth itself is not a process. If that makes any sense to you. So, 
what is happening with those who are appalled by the violence of novelty? That's, I'm, I want to kind of go back to those people like the little kid. And by the way, on some level, all of us are appalled by certain kinds of novelty. So uh, let's look at that. And this is where the coffee comes in. It might be hard to believe, but coffee, when it was first introduced into the West, was rejected. Because most new things, yeah, I know, heresy. <laughs> so, like, most things, when they are introduced, are rejected first. That's just how it works. That's how di the dialectical process of history is. Coffee was once not new. Most of us today would, I think, especially think it weird if coffee were rejected on religious grounds. And that's exactly what happened. Here we are in a coffee shop that is filled with Christian books, and we think that this is not heresy. How wrong could we be? Thank goodness. Uh, everyone needs a little heresy on a Friday morning. Um, okay, so in the 16th and 17th century, coffee was repeatedly outlawed by religious and political leaders in Cairo, Istanbul, and parts of Europe, because it's, and this is, it was spreading from Ethiopia and Yemen. And the reason was firstly that, which we all know, coffee is intoxicating, has kind of intoxicating <laughs> qualities. The other one is that coffee houses, the more alarming thing, and should be alarming to you here while you're sitting here, coffee houses had an alarming tendency to encourage the free exchange of ideas. <laughs> <laughs> King Charles II sought to close down all coffee houses explicitly because he did not like people, and I'm quoting a bit, sitting half the day in them, insinuating into the ears of people a prejudice <laughs> against rulers. <laughs> The key ideas that I want to bring out from this example of rejecting coffee, this absurd thing that people did, is that it is the ideological component of the new that people reject. That's the thing. Why? Because people see ideas as being fundamentally bound up with their identities. We actually, on some level, attach our sense of self to what's happening. And the same is true, it's not just personal identity. Identity never exists in isolation, as you will know if you've had any sort of contact with mimetic theory. Identity is always plural. It's you in a group. Think about this, when I was in high school, the first, uh, back then, cell phones weren't around. I know it's also hard to believe. So the first guy arrives uh, in class with a cell phone. What happens? Of course, the new thing gets rejected. They confiscate the phone. They don't know what to do with this thing because this radically new object is actually disrupting, well, I mean, it does that to us now, but we just accept it. It's disrupting the identity of people. Now, we think that's very strange because now we've incorporated this new thing and it's now old. So it's completely unobtrusive to us now. But the key thing is that it's an identity, the new is an identity issue. So when you get confronted with a new thing and you feel a bit of resistance, the question is not why is that thing bad? That's not helpful. It's rather, why am I so resistant to it? In what way is this alerting me to my sense of identity? I think that would be a helpful way of, of looking at things. Um, there's always also in the new a sense, because the new is tied to identity and group, personal and group identity, there is also a sense that the new is a betrayal. 
which I think some of you who've come to TJIF and seen me argue with people, uh, it's never pretty, but like there's a tendency to actually, that, that arises, especially when I, I incite violence by presenting my own version of the right of spring. It's particularly messy. But there's resistance and because, especially in a Christian community, there is a sense that this is a violation, a betrayal of identity. Whereas I see it as a continuation. So that, that would be a, a very important thing to, to notice. Um, but here, here's where it gets interesting. There is always an unseen dimension of the new, which is that the new might seem like a betrayal, but in some sense the old can never be seen without the new again. Even if you reject something new, you can't look at your existing state of being without, in some sense, referencing that new thing. Which is where it's interesting. The old is dependent on the new. That sounds like a complete reverse, reverse of chrono chronology. But it's true of our experience. Like, the old thing is absolutely impossible to conceive of without the new. Let's look at the new atheists as an example. <coughs> They show up and they've got like really shoddy philosophy and they start tearing Christianity to shreds. Because, sorry, Christians were asking for it. But they present this kind of shoddy philosophy in an, an amazingly remarkable way. The apologetics, Christian apologetics industry goes mad. They have a new sales point. And suddenly that entire way of thinking apologetically, cannot be thought apart from their dependence upon the new atheists. The old is dependent on the new. So in a weird sort of way, even when the new is rejected, it is accepted. <laughs> I, like, I like paradoxes, so there you go. Uh, even when it's rejected, it's accepted, because now... You're reframing what you think in terms of that new thing. All thinking, by the way, is in some sense dialectical. All thought has to meet its opposite. And by the way, all creativity is in some sense dialectic dialectical. You have to destroy the tree before you can make a boat. If that's what you're making. Or a sculpture. Art and creativity is always in some sense rejecting something and moving forward. But the important thing to see, to see here is that the rejection of something is also its acceptance. Just as the new atheists create a dependency upon new atheism for apologists, new atheism is a parasite upon historical Christianity. At least you'll think about these things a little differently, which is kind of my point. Uh, so all thoughts actually rely on negatives. Um, what I have found, okay, so, so one of the things that, that I, I became aware of a while back is that, that the Baptist sort of church that I was um, involved in was becoming more and more ingrained in a kind of Calvinist ideology. And so I did what anyone sensibly would do in that situation. I left. It's, it's just <coughs> terrible. But... I have to acknowledge that my current, I don't know what you would call it, like my lapsed atheism, my heretical orthodox Catholicism, that is in some sense dependent upon that, that Calvinist framework that I reject. 
And so what happens in the process of realizing that is that that Calvinist framework becomes less appalling to me. I'm less appalled by it, and I suddenly see that it was, in some sense, a necessary step on the way to transcending it. Just like, if you're looking at spiritual formation, you have to have an ego before you can transcend your ego. You can't transcend nothing. That doesn't work. It's not possible. So that raises the question, how should we engage with the new? I think that's kind of a good place to, to start working towards an end. If we know that the new is always accepted, even when it, it is rejected, how should we relate to it? So I have a few thoughts. I, I've already mentioned this, but I'll mention it again. Novelty is essential to life. I would say that life is change. Like, so, so we have to, on some level, be grappling with what that change means. We need to grapple with whether we laugh at the joke or not. Um, if the joke makes us angry, so back to the analogy of the joke, sorry. Uh, if the joke makes us angry, why is it making us angry? What is up with us? What's up with the joke? It's something external to us. We need to figure out how we relate to it. It may be worth investigating how we respond to new ideas. For example, um, you could ask a few questions. When was the last time a new idea irked you? If it was today, I've done a good job. Um, or at least got you questioning things. Uh, when was the last time you found a new idea compelling? Was there a new idea that you encountered that actually got you to rethink your own ideological position? That would be amazing. That happens to me at least three times a day, and I think it's the most thrilling thing on earth. I know that's not everyone's sort of level of toleration, but it's amazing. That, that's something uh, worth exploring. What, what does that idea or your response to it say about your sense of identity or your sense of group identity? Or what does it say about where you locate your faith? Um, and then I think a very interesting uh, take is to look at Jesus's turn the other cheek uh, phrase as a way of engaging with the new. I think it's a really good idea. So the new, especially if the new is perceived as some kind of offense or uh, an antithesis, a, a discontinuity, maybe we could look at it as, in terms of turn the other cheek, one of the insights, there are many that come from this phrase, one of the insights is that sometimes just accommodating difference diffuses the negative or violent energy around a thing. What we resist, in fact, owns us. That's, so, so the more you resist something, the more you are indebted to it for your own sense of resisting it. Does that make sense? And this idea of turning the other cheek, well, that's a great way to look at novelty. Don't, don't resist it. Even if you disagree with it, don't resist it. Engage. Figure out like what, what that can say to you, how it can teach you something. Um, for example, if someone opposes what, what I say, I often find my resolve in that issue deepened. I, I, I find myself more resolved to believe the thing, especially when I encounter opposition. And so I have to notice, well, maybe I need to like, embrace that too. So this is very much, um, uh, if any of you have read Richard Raw, and if you haven't, you should. Um, he's got a, which is what he would say, um, uh, he's got a book called Everything Belongs, and, and in it he talks about this thing of getting towards a, to a, a non-dual way of thinking, which is exactly what I'm actually promoting through looking at creativity. To look at things and go, everything has its place. Everything has a place, even if I don't like it, even if it is evil. 
that's very scary thinking, but it's also a way to, I think, achieve a, a deeper sort of harmony with the world and with yourself. It is better to engage with novelty than to simply resist it. Um, so when novelty appears to me be making a truth claim, it's a good idea to think about the context and the purpose of that so-called truth claim. I'm sure you have your own examples. I'm, I'm hoping you've thought of a few of the things that you've encountered recently that you thought were new. And maybe you, you're thinking about, what is the truth claim? Everyone has a perspective, and even if they say something ludicrously different to what you believe, what happens if that actually is true in a different context? People don't just say randomly false things because they're idiots. Some very intelligent people say things that are different from what I've, I've maybe held to be true. And I think I can learn from them. That's basically my posture. It's one of the reasons why I predominantly read books I do not agree with. It's a very strange thing. Like A lot of people go out to watch only movies that they will like or only read books that they will agree with. Why? You already know what they're going to say because it's what you already think. Like, how are you going to grow if there's no sort of resistance? I, these are genuinely deep questions, and I hope you think about them. Um, so we need to understand that our perspectives are always going to be limited. We always see things finitely as finite individuals, which means that we're all, always missing something. In hermeneutics, which is the theory that I, I dabble in from time to time, there's this basic idea that meaning always comes to us as a surplus. There's a, there's a surplus of meaning. It's excessive and generative and abundant. And we can engage with that as an abundant source, uh, source of inspiration, I think, and, and, uh, and novelty. Uh, so the question, of course, is not how is this novelty wrong, but in what way can I learn from this perspective? So obviously this doesn't uh, end this discussion. Obviously, I've, I've looked at kind of a very abstract notion, dialectic, but I hope you see that this, this plays out in profound ways in personal situations, in work situations, in when you're reading things. Dialectic is the, the interplay of opposites, and it is how things move forward. The trouble, of course, is that the canary dies, <laughs> but there is some kind of uh, resurrection at the end, some kind of renewed... Uh, perception of things. And I think that's really powerful. By the way, that is how imagination works. Imagination, the basic definition is to see something as if it is something else, or to see something through the lens of something else. There is a movement away, dialectic, but then there is also a move back, analogy. So that is what I will talk about next week. Uh, if you want to have uh, asked some questions or share some insights that you've had or thoughts or argue with me, you're very, very welcome now to do that. Sometimes because the more arguments you argue with you, the more your opposite thoughts will be embraced in my thinking. <laughs> <laughs> well, I hope so. <laughs> I'm not sure if it'll always win. Yes, sir. <coughs>
<laughs> Thank you. So for asking two questions that I can't actually answer. <laughs> I'm very grateful for that. Okay, Chesterton and novelty. Chesterton, at the beginning of his book, Orthodoxy, has this wonderful thing where he, said, he talks about how he, he set out to, to start his own new heresy. He wanted to form his own new heresy. So he was like, this is what I'm going to do. And then in the process, to his horror, discovered that it was orthodoxy. <laughs> so he said, I tried to be some 18 minutes in front of the truth and discovered to my horror that I, I was some 1800 years behind it. So that's, that's an analogy for you. That's actually how analogical thinking works as a transcendence of dialectic. There is a progress that works. But that progress, that process of working through opposites and contentions is ultimately to reveal the truth that was already there. It was already latently hidden in all things. So that's, that's, that's a very rough... Um, Idea. And that's one of the reasons why I want to look at analogy and how that works. We are literally going to, while we sit here, come up with creative ideas. Uh, you do it every day, by the way. You're not aware of this, but I want to actually talk about that thinking process. Um, and I think it's really important to become aware that we are always testing things in terms of opposites. But the point is to get back and go, what is the truth latently hidden that binds these two opposites together? That's what Chesterton is revealing. On technology. Okay, so uh, a Chestertonian scholar, well, at, in his early days, um, Marshall McLuhan writes quite, quite extensively on this. And McLuhan talks about how new technologies, you, you must actually look at what new technologies do. They cause complete revolutions of how culture works. So if we start with, say, moving from an oral culture into a print culture, there's a move away from dialogue, actually weirdly enough, a move away from dialogue to dialectic. So there's this idea of people working out the truth in a process through a group, through a community, and suddenly when print arrives, they start working in isolation. They start thinking in isolation. So technology, the important thing about technology is not its positive or negative value, but the, the changes that it creates. And the important thing to foreseeing those changes is in fact dialectic. You need to be able to look at history from the outside. So one way to engage with new technologies is to look at imaginative people's engagement with new technologies, as in reading Isaac Asimov or like engaging with science fiction. People who have actually for, like, foreseen what's going to happen and also started to engage with the consequences. This is why science fiction, literature and film is very philosophical. It's actually trying to go, well, what are the consequences? Not, why is this bad, but what is this going to do, and how are we going to engage with it as a result of what it does? What this means for me, especially, is not, is not just wholesale embracing technology and going like, this is wonderful, yay, we have iPads. I don't see anyone with an iPad. Um, it's more like, what does an iPad do what doesn't it do? Every technology extends us, but it also amputates us. So, I mean, well, I've spoken about this at, at one point a few years ago, but like if you, if you look at a supermarket, how people go into a supermarket and what they actually do when they're in the supermarket. They, they walk into the supermarket with a sense of determination. They have their shopping list. And five, not very long later, five minutes later, they're all staring at the aisles like, like zombies. Why? 
because the supermarket is a high density visual space. It's absolute sensory overload for people like me. Right? Like you just it's just color and I mean step back from the shelf and look at how much color you're being like is being bulleted at your eyes. It's amazing. But it extends your vision and it amputates your body. And the same thing happens with a cell phone. It's why people when they're on their cell phones can't drive, because it extends their ears and their mouths while they're talking, but it amputates their bodies. So the thing with technology is often a, when uh, I know someone a few weeks ago spoke about this. Um, I felt there could have been more emphasis on precisely how to balance our relationship mm. with technology. Use the cell phone. Put it down. Draw. Go for a run. Like, drive. Every single medium you use will extend your body and your sense of self in a different way. But be aware of what it amputates and how to address that in another way. Uh, so there is a dialectical interplay between media as well. Maybe that sort of goes in a fair direction. Uh, I'm an ideologist, so everything must be perfect. And um, I, I think the problem is not always engaging with new ideas, but when you work through the new idea and you come back to the same conclusions and your same original beliefs, so you kind of went in this cycle, and so, so nothing has really changed. And the problem um, then is uh, trying to accept the new idea while you're still stuck in your old ideas. It's, you know, funny, and because of, I'm an ideologist, idealist, idealist, <laughs> idealist sorry. Um, you are an ideologist too, I think. <laughs> Uh, truth is, is so important that everything must just be right. Um, I think, well, part of what I'm trying to argue here is that you can't return to the old in the same way. Even if it seems, it feels existentially, you experience that you are returning to the old in the same way. You're not. You are still now informed by that new perspective as someone returning to the old. The thing is also... I, I, I think in a way, um, a good way to look at the new is through the, the analogy of the grass is greener, the, the way that we often perceive the next thing is going to fulfill me better than the previous thing. And often it's just not going to happen. So I think part of what we need to realize is the ways that the new will fail us. It's also that this is why I argue also we need to look at the ways that dialectic fails. Dialectic can be very impersonal. Anyone can employ a dialectical strategy. Dialogue, which is what dialectic actually stems from, dialogue is much more personal, and it's more about an exposing of being, to use metaphysical language. It's an exposure of who we are. Dialectic focuses on logic and how things relate and tries to, in a way, map things from a distant, fairly impersonal position. So I think part of engaging with the new, if we're stuck in the old thing, Good questions can come from being stuck, which, like, what am I clinging to? In what way is my sense of self tied to this thing that I'm clinging to? What don't I like? I mean, the, it is legitimate to be faced with a new thing and go, I don't like that. That's fine. But to stop there <coughs> is to forget to ask questions about how that new thing can help us to, to enrich our perspective. It doesn't quite answer what you're trying to grapple with. I, I think this is a personal journey that everyone needs to to figure out in some way. <coughs> yeah. Looking at that, T.S. Eliot quoted, and 
arguable response on that. Right. Says, At the end of all our exploration, we will be we will be to arrive where we started and know the place for the first time. Okay. <laughs> um, one of the cool things. Okay, so what I have here is this is my book, and the opening quote. Uh, looks alarmingly like T.S. Eliot, and it's that, which you just read. The other thing that it is um, from Chesterton, if I can find it, there it is, and then I'll explain. My, my response to that is this. So it's only a couple hundred pages. Um, Chesterton's view of this is, now there is a law written in the darkest of the books of life, and it is this. If you look at a thing 999 times, you are perfectly safe. If you look at it the thousandth time, you are in frightful danger of seeing it for the first time. And that's, that's what I mean by truth is always there to be discovered. That it is discovered through multiple, through multiple eyes, like every single one's perspective, through multiple lenses. And I think that's what creates its richness richness it's it's just endlessly discoverable you rediscover things and that's the amazing thing about the new chesterton's quip about like looking for a new heresy and discovering it was orthodoxy the reason his orthodoxy was interesting to him was he was trying to find what was new in it not what was outdated and old and this is why i think every single generation has to look for instance at theology and go in what ways do we need to update this? Not update the truth of it, but update the perspective we have on the truth of it. That will be just, I promise, entirely liberating. And that's kind of, it's, it's kind of my mission, like what I try to do in a lot of my work. I don't know if that, that is an answer, Brian. Yeah. yeah. Just a, a, a thought, um, in terms of old and new, you know, the Absolutely. Uh, a really good example of this is the, the Reformation. Okay, so what, what was Martin Luther trying to do? Apart from figure out like some woodworking skills with a nail and a hammer. Um, he was trying to reform the Catholic Church. So he came up, he was the antithesis to the thesis. What happened in the process was the Catholic Church ended up reforming anyway. But there was a breakaway. So Protestantism is forever protesting. It's still stuck in forever protesting. It's actually one of the things that I both love and hate about Protestantism. It, it, it is trying to renew our perspective on things. But that's what happens. The, the antithesis clarifies precisely what the thesis is about. People within the Catholic Church are faced with this a lot of accusations. And alarmingly, they are true. The thing is not to go, they're false and we're not going to change. The thing to do is to go, in what way is Martin Luther right? Next step would be for Luther to go, in what way am I wrong? But uh, that never happened. And that's why we're here today. <laughs> Some of us are quite glad about this. But, uh, yeah, anyway. Martin Luther never wants to He didn't. He got excommunicated, right? So... Yeah, so that's the, the key thing, is that often the, the difficult changes are actually from within. They're different 
personality types and different people are going to reform things in different ways. Luther wanted to reform things from within. Then there are reformers, like Donald Trump, who want to just destroy the system itself. Not from within, but to actually step above everything and to collapse the system. So that's, that's a scary kind of antithesis, because there's no engagement, there's just disengagement and, and violence, basically, rhetorical violence as well. I think Richard Raw wrote Immortal Gut Diamond, and, and that's, to me, almost the key thing to rediscovering ourselves in the process of going deeper into ourselves, that diamond that's there. Yeah. That, to me, is almost the point of everything, imagination, everything else, imagination. is to rediscover the God within, the diamond within, the, the who we are. Yeah, the true self. Absolutely. Yeah, I think what what dialectic, if we get stuck at the level of dialectic in these opposites, we miss what that dialectic is just the surface. There is something beneath it, the true self that can actually come through, through engaging, through through even through a process of dialectic. It can be a very transcendent tool to actually strip away illusion. But absolutely. Good point. It's a more comment, but what you're saying. It's so exactly how therapy actually works. Everything that you brought in today, it's all narrative therapy. Not everyone works in the same way. It's literally this type of thing where you challenge them, the true and the, the new that we'll go back to and the fright, frightening process of how do I incorporate this now. And from the sideline, it's not, it's not the therapist's job. It's a person or people sitting in front of you that have to be nudged, bullied to make these realizations and put the puzzle Yeah, I mean, I think true. It, it will be true of, of so many things. Um, in therapy, specifically, th actually using trauma, um, experience of, of trauma and then the therapy after that, it's not to say to the trauma, go away, you do not exist. That's the worst kind of therapy, right? The better form is to go, how can I embrace what this this as part of my story, not my whole story, I think that's part of the trouble, trauma becomes the whole story, but it is to actually embrace it as part of the process and, and how even terrible things can bring profound realizations. It's not to say that they weren't terrible, but they are not the total truth of, of the entire human experience. So I'm going to frame a whole lot of thoughts with a simple question. Uh, you've used the word true and truth a lot today. So in terms of the novel this idea of dialectics, how do you define truth? I don't define truth, but thank you for that question. <laughs> um, I'm a hermeneutical theorist, so, so the best way to th think of this is to, to negate to dialectic against the modern conception of truth as proposition. I see truth as relation, and, and so it's something that works within process. A good example of this is Jesus refers to himself as the truth. He's not saying uh, he's not saying something that is a truth statement. He's saying something about the way that people relate to him. 
It's the, the entire relational uh, field. So truth is omni-nameable and un unnameable, and I could go into negative theology to explain that, but it would be, I'm, I'm saying there is something called truth, and I would, I would be hard-pressed to, to negate that because I have explained a lot of things here that I hope are true. But it's not in the specifics of what I'm saying. It's in the dialogue and how you relate to it and how we might work through it. Maybe that helps you in some way. Hilan. Um, just to be brief, in the context of your thesis, there's been a number of very exciting new questions about fundamental concepts. Um, I'm trying to keep it simple. I wouldn't um, expect anything less from you. Just your, your, your comments, your new ideas about them. So you mentioned identity in a very interesting way. You sketched it out in terms of, um, first of all, how, we, how it's sort of created in our minds by the positive ideas we have, but also how it's negatively shaped by the things we reject and negative But these all centered and somehow defined by our beliefs. Knowledge plays an interesting role, but I'm not quite sure if this is a lot more fuzzy now. But now beliefs are determined by our values. Now the question comes in two parts. It's, the first part is now what's the role of, in fact, what's the nature of persuasion? And then what's the mechanics of persuasion in creating values? Okay. I'm going to, I realize the complexity of what you're pointing out. Persuasion is about identification. You persuade someone by starting on the same page and moving from that page to the next page. You cannot persuade someone very easily by starting 500 pages later and then expecting that person who's only on page one to jump to where you are. So this is one of the reasons why being persuasive, a lot of it is not just knowing what you want to say, but knowing where your audience is in relation to what you want to say. So it is persuasion, as you have pointed out, is an identity issue. It's how we identify ourselves in relation to statements and ideas and ideologies. Don't know if that solves anything. I'm aware that we're running out of time. <laughs> we'll chat after. Um, so thank you very much for being here today. It's, um, I hope this has been at least some, somewhat stimulating. The really cool stuff is next week, but I had to kind of ground it this week with, with this stuff. So even if you didn't understand today, if you want to understand how you think and how you might be more creative, that's what next week is about. Um, and even those of my students who are here, um, it's stuff that I've never touched on in, in my lectures. So it will be new, which is, I think, the point. <laughs> Thanks, everyone. By the way, if you are interested in uh, getting one, one of my books, you're very welcome to talk to me. I'll tell you the price in private. Um, <laughs> I, I, I can order them at a slightly reduced rate, which is, is nice. So, yeah. Thanks, everyone. So, see you next week and have a good long weekend, I hope. Cheers, everyone. <laughs>